Chairman, and, and thank you, Judge Barrett, and your family for being here with us today uh, for this marathon of <laughs> questioning. Thank uh, you, Senator Durbin. Appreciate it. I would like to respond to two of my colleagues quickly before I ask a few questions of you. How, who came up with this notion, this insulting notion that you might violate your oath? Where could this idea have come from? Could it have come from the White House? Could it have come from the president's tweets of what he expects a Supreme Court nominee to do politically for him? That's where it comes from. That's where it originated. And you have said very clearly today, without equivocation, you are not going to be influenced by President Trump's importuning or the importuning of this committee or anyone else, which is what we expect you to say. But this notion that this whole idea of your being used for political purposes is a democratic creation. Read the tweets, and you have plenty to work with. Read the tweets. The second thing I would like to say is I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, defending uh, the Affordable Care Act, although I think it's the most important single vote I've cast as a member of Congress, period. But I will say that when the chairman opened up on it and said what he did, I was puzzled. Three states get 35% of the money? How can that possibly be true? Well, it turns out because those states decided to extend Medicaid coverage to the people who lived in the states, and his did not. And as a consequence, fewer people in South Carolina have the protection of health insurance, and those that do are paying for their services, and those that don't are not, which imperils hospitals and others in the process. So I would say there is an explanation as to why some states are spending more. And incidentally, there was a Republican governor of your state, Indiana, by the name of Mike Pence, who decided to break with other Republican governors and extend Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act. I think it was the right thing to do for Indiana as it was for Illinois. But that's part of the reasoning. Let me just say that the Affordable Care Act really is at the heart of this, as you can tell on the Democratic side. We really believe the Supreme Court's consideration of that case is going to, could literally change America for millions of people. I have with me today another group I'd like you to at least be aware of because they're pretty amazing people. But um, this is the Williams family. They live in Naperville, not too far from Chicago. Yeah. Kathy and Les Williams have four sons from left to right. Matt, Joey, Tommy, and Mikey. Matt, who's 27, was diagnosed with type 1 di diabetes when he was 13. The other three Williams boys were all born with cystic fibrosis. Mm. Joey is 24, Mikey's 21. Sadly, Mikey's twin, Tommy, after this picture was taken, passed away in January 2019 from complications. This is the last photo was ever taken of their full family. Here's what they wrote me. We cannot imagine having to go through losing another child. People with cystic fibrosis require daily medication, regular doctor visits, access to high quality specialized care. That means people with pre-existing conditions like cystic fibrosis cannot be discriminated against. The ACA's protections ensure a ban on annual and lifetime caps and enforce the requirement that insurers cover essential health benefits such as hospitalizations or mental health services. People with CF and other pre-existing conditions need adequate, affordable health care to live longer, healthier lives. That's why we keep bringing this up, real people that we run into all the time. There's a chart here I'd like to share too, Dan, while we're at it. On the Republican side, there's some obvious controversy as to whether we're right or wrong. There are an awful lot of people in each of the states represented by our Republican senators who have 
their health care and literally, in some cases, their lives hanging in the balance. South Carolina, 242,000 people would lose their insurance coverage if the Affordable Care Act were eliminated. Two million living in that state have pre-existing conditions. You can imagine the list goes on. Thank you. Here's what it comes down to. You've been unequivocal in being critical of the decisions both in uh, NFIB Sibelius and in King Burwell. And we naturally draw the conclusion there's going to be a third strike uh, it, when it comes to Texas and California. You said it won't affect pre-existing conditions. If the petitioners have their way, there will not be an Affordable Care Act to protect pre-existing conditions on the severability question. So give us an insight how you can be so unequivocal in opposing the majority decisions in NFIB Sibelius and in King and Burwell, but have an open mind when it comes to the future of the Affordable Care Act. Sure. Thank you for that question, Senator Durbin, because it gives me an opportunity to make my position clear. Um, when I wrote, and I add this was as a law professor, about those decisions, I did critique the statutory interpretation of the majority opinions. And as I mentioned before, my description of them was consistent with the way that Chief Justice Roberts described the statutory question. But I think that your concern is that because I critiqued the statutory reasoning that I'm hostile to the ACA, and that because I'm hostile to the ACA that I would decide a case a particular way. And I assure you that I am not. I'm not hostile to the ACA. I'm not hostile to any statute that you pass. And the cases on which I commented, and we can talk at another time, I guess, about the context, the distinctions between academic writing and judicial decision making, but those were on entirely different issues. So to assume that because I critiqued the interpretation of the mandate or the phrase established by a state, means that on the entirely different legal question of severability, I would reach a particular result, just assumes that I'm hostile. And that's not the case. I apply the law, I follow the law, you make the policy. <clears throat> so let, let's talk about that for a moment from a different issue perspective. Bear with me for a couple questions. Have you seen the George Floyd video? I have. What impact did it have on you? Um, Senator, as you might imagine, given that I have two black children, that was very, very personal for my family. Um, Jesse was with the boys on a camping trip out in South Dakota, so I was there, and my 17-year-old daughter, Vivian, who's adopted from Haiti, um, all of this was erupting. It was very difficult for her. Um, we wept together in my room, and then it was also difficult for my daughter, Juliet, who's 10. I had to try to explain some of this to them. I mean, my children, to this point in their lives, have had the benefit of growing up in a cocoon where they have not yet experienced hatred or violence. Um, and for Vivian, you know, to understand that there would be a risk to her brother or the son she might have one day of that kind of brutality has been an ongoing conversation. It's a difficult one for us, like it is for Americans all over the country. And so I'd like to ask you, as an originalist who obviously has a passion for history, I can't imagine that you could separate the two, 
to reflect on the history of this country. Where are we today when it comes to the issue of race? Some argue it's fine. Everything's fine, and you don't have to even teach children about the history of slavery or discrimination. Others say there is implicit bias in so many aspects of American life that we have to be very candid about and address. Others go further and say, no, it's systemic racism that's built into America, and we have to be much more pointed in our, our, our addressing it. How do you feel? So I think it is an entirely uncontroversial and obvious statement given, as we just talked about the George Floyd video, that racism persists in our country. As to putting my finger on the nature of the problem, you know, whether, as you say, it's just outright or systemic racism, or how to tackle the, prop, the issue of making it better, those things you know, are policy questions. They're hotly contested policy questions that have been in the news and discussed all summer. So while, you know, as I did share my personal experience, I'm very you know, happy to discuss the reaction our family had to the George Floyd video, giving broader statements or making, you know, broader diagnoses about the problem of racism is kind of beyond what I'm capable of doing as a judge. Well, I, I would doubt that. I just don't believe you can be as passionate about originalism and the history behind language that we've had for decades, if not centuries, without having some thought about where we stand today. But I'm not going to press you on that. I'm going to take you to a case which uh, I have read and reread, Cantor versus Barr. Mm -hmm. And you know the case well because it's already been referred to. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it clearly is a case where you had your day in court. You wrote the sole dissent in uh, a 64-page case, 37 pages were your dissent. So you gave to the court, I assume, a pretty full uh, accounting of your thoughts on the subject. And here's the way I understand the case. A fellow named, fellow named Ricky Cantor from McQuan, Wisconsin, invented some pads to put in a shoe to be sold to particularly older Americans under Medicare uh, to relieve foot pain. And he designed them and submitted them to Medicare and didn't get the approval that he was looking for, but instead sold them and represented to many customers that they had been approved by Medicare. Mm -hmm. And so he was charged with fraud. Now, this wasn't a matter of a casual uh, mis misapplication of the law. When it was all said and done, Ricky Cantor of McQuan, Wisconsin, ended up spending over a year, a year and a day, uh, in federal prison, paying somewhere near $300,000 in penalties and fines, and $27 million in a civil settlement on this issue. So this was not a casual wrongdoing. This man was a swindler, and he was taking the federal government for a ride, as, lo as well as other customers and misleading senior citizens about his product, uh, and paid a heavy price for it. Then he decided, having left prison, that it's just fundamentally unfair that the law says that if you've been convicted of a felony, you can't own a firearm. Now, I don't know what his appetite is when it comes to firearms, whether it's a revolver or an AK-47 with a banana clip. I have no idea. But he went to court and said, this is unfair. 
It was just mail fraud, and you're taking away my Second Amendment rights. So two out of three of your colleagues then uh, basically said, sorry, Ricky, you have forfeited your right to own a firearm because of your conviction of a felony. You took a different approach, exactly the opposite approach, and went deep into history. I think the earliest citation I see here was 1662 uh, to figure out just what was going on here and whether or not he had to have committed a violent felony to have forfeited this right to own a firearm. Have I stated the facts close to what you remember? I don't remember the amount of the loss, some of those details, but yes, Ricky Cantor was um, convicted of selling fraudulent shoe inserts, and it was a felony. Mm -hmm. $27 million settlement along the way. So I'd like to take you into your thinking on this. When the Heller decision was handed down, Justice Scalia expressly said, I'm not taking away the authority of government to impose limitations based on felonies, not violent felonies, felonies and mental illness. He said as much in the Heller decision. And yet, this man who was your inspiration, as you've told us all, uh, you decided he was wrong and that it had to be a violent felony. Can you explain why? I can. So we've talked about precedent. And in my court, the Seventh Circuit, there is precedent saying that that phrase doesn't control, as you know, my colleague Judge Frank Easterbrook has said a number of times, that judicial opinions aren't statutes and shouldn't be read as if they were. So Heller obviously wasn't about the scope of the right, you know, um, its application to felons or those who are mentally ill, et cetera. And so that passage was dicta. It didn't fully dive down into it. But what I did was apply Heller's methodology, both Justice Scalia's majority opinion and Justice Stevens' dissent used an originalist methodology to answer that question. And I concluded that based on that history, one couldn't take the right away simply because one was a felon, that there had to be a showing of dangerousness. And I didn't rule out the possibility that the government might be able to make that showing about Ricky Cantor. But I think we could all agree that we ought to be careful of saying that because someone's a felon, they lose any of their individual rights. I want to get to that point, but I'd like to stick with this for just a moment more. Um, I'm honored to represent the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. It's a great city, but it has great problems too. And one of them is gun violence. On the average, we know in America, 100 Americans are killed every day by gunfire, 40,000 per year. In the city of Chicago, more than 3,200 people have been shot just this year, 3,200. According to the city's gun trace report in 2017, the majority of illegally used or possessed firearms recovered in Chicago are traced back to states with less regulation over firearms, such as Indiana and Mississippi. The 2017 report found that Indiana alone was the source of 21% of all Chicago's recovered crime guns. We know how it works. Where you live, you know how it works. There's a traffic between Chicago, northern Indiana, and Michigan going on constantly. Gun shows are held in Gary, Indiana, and other places. And when they're selling these firearms without background checks, unfortunately, these gangbangers and thugs fill up the trunks of their cars with firearms and head into the city of Chicago and kill everyone from infants to older people. It just, it's a horrific situation. 
Law enforcement is fighting it, trying to get Indiana to at least do background checks at these gun shows with limited success. And we are trying to apply the standards that you disqualify yourself from buying a firearm to felonies and mental illness. And you want to take away part of that uh, protection with your decision in this case. Because if you eliminate felonies and just confine it to violent felonies, you're opening up more opportunities for people to buy firearms, are you not? Well, Senator, you referred to gang members and thugs um, buying guns in Indiana and taking them across the border. And certainly, that if they, if they had felony convictions for doing the kinds of things that members of gangs and thugs do, nothing in Cantor says that the government can't deprive them of firearms. And nothing says, in my opinion, that the government can't deprive Ricky Cantor of having firearms. They simply had to make a showing of dangerousness before they did so. And nothing in the opinion opines at all on the legality of background checks and gun licensing. Those are all separate issues. But the majority zeroes in and says what you've just said is totally impractical, that we are going to go case by case and decide, well, what kind of felonies and what kind of person? And then they go on to produce evidence. I could read the numbers here, but you know them well because you wrote the dissent where the likelihood of committing a violent felony after being convicted of a felony is pretty dramatic. And they're saying to us, don't let us, don't force us to make a case by case. We want to make it by category. It's the only practical way to deal with the thousands, if not millions, of people who are buying firearms. You are aware of the fact that even those who are so-called not violent felons, quote, only felons, like Ricky Cantor, have a propensity to, to commit violent felonies in the future, are you not? There was no evidence of that in the case. And we, on courts, for example, the Armed Career Criminal Act, um, that's a federal statute, have to make judgments categorically all the time about what count as crimes of violence. Um, so I don't think that's beyond the ken of courts in any area to identify which felonies are violent and you know which felonies are not. So let's um, Excuse me, but I, yeah. I won't address that issue. Let's go to page 21 of the opinion and what the court said, the majority in the court. Most felons, they quoted Yancey, most felons are nonviolent, but someone with felony conviction on his record is more likely than a non-felon to engage in illegal and violent gun use. For example, one study, this goes on to say, 210,886 nonviolent offenders found that one out of five were rearrested for a violent crime within three years. So the evidence is there. It, it is there for the court to consider, and you ignored it. Senator, I didn't ignore it. Um, as I recall, that evidence and the studies were unclear. Um, it, and let's see, I can't remember as I'm sitting here the details of all the statistics, but I did consider it, and I recall saying something in the opinion about the reliability of those studies, because they didn't say whether someone had been convicted of a nonviolent crime but had later been convicted of a, a violent crime as well. I mean, felonies cover a broad range of things, including selling pigs without a license in some states, redeeming too many bottle caps in Michigan. I mean, so felonies now cover a broad swath of conduct, not all of which seems indicative of whether someone's likely to abuse a firearm. So let's, let me take you, I'm not gonna go so far back in history uh, but I'm, I'm going to take you back in history for a moment uh, and note that when that Second Amendment was written, 
and you did the analysis of it, we were talking about the likelihood that a person could purchase a muzzle-loading musket. We are now talking about virtual military weapons that can kill hundreds of innocent people. It is a much different circumstance. Maybe an originalist pins all their thinking to that musket, but I've got to bring it to the 21st century. And the 21st century has people being killed on the streets of Chicago because of the proliferation of deadly firearms. But let me bring it closer to home and, and tie up the George Floyd question with where I'm headed. There's also a question as whether the commission of a felony disqualifies you from voting in America. And the history on that is pretty clear. In an article the American Journal of Sociology found that many <clears throat> felony voting bans were passed in the late 1860s and 1870s when implementation of the 15th Amendment and its extension of voting rights to African Americans were ardently contested. It still goes on today with voter suppression. But we know that in Reconstruction, uh, in the Jim Crow era, in Black Code era, that was used, a felony conviction was used to disqualify African Americans from voting in the South and, and many other places. The sentencing project today has found that more than six million Americans can't vote because of a felony conviction, and one out of every 13 black Americans have lost their voting rights. The reason I raise that is that in your dissent, you said disqualifying a pers person from voting because of a simple, simple, because of a felony is okay, but when it comes to the possession of firearms, wait a minute, we're talking about the individual right of a Second Amendment. What we're talking about in voting is a civic right, a community right, however you define it. I don't get it. So you're saying that a felony should not disqualify Ricky from buying an AK-47, but using a felony conviction that someone's passed to deny them the right to vote is all right? Um, Senator, what I said was that the Constitution contemplates that states have the freedom to deprive felons of the right to vote. It's expressed in the constitutional text, but I expressed no view on whether that was a good idea, whether states should do that. And I didn't explore in that opinion because it was completely irrelevant to it what limits, if any, there might be on a state's um, ability to curtail felon voting but rights. Did you not distinguish the Second Amendment right from the right to vote, calling one an individual right under the Constitution and the other a civic right? That's consistent with the language in the historical context, the way the briefs described it, and it was part of the dispute in Heller of whether the Second Amendment was an individual right or a civic one that was possessed collectively for the sake of the common good. And everybody was treating voting as one of the civic rights. Well, I will just tell you that the, the conclusion of this is hard to swallow. The notion that Mr. Cantor, after all that he did, should not be even slowed down when he's on his way to buy a firearm. My goodness, it's just a felony. It's not a violent felony that he committed. And then to turn around on the other hand and say, well, but when it comes to taking away a person's right to vote, that's the civic duty. It, it, it's something that we could countenance. That is really goes back to the original George Floyd question. That was thinking in the 19th century resulted in voter suppression and taking away the right to vote from millions of African Americans across this country. And it still continues to this day. I just don't see it. I think the right to vote should be given at least as much respect as any Second Amendment right. Do you? Senator, 
the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that voting is a fundamental right, and I fear that you might be taking my statement and Cantor out of context. What I said in that opinion was distinguishing between, it was a descriptive statement of the state of the court's case law, comparing it to felon, uh, stripping felons of Second Amendment rights. I expressed no view about whether what the constitutional limits of that might be or whether the law should change with respect to felling voting rights. And obviously that's a contested issue in some states that are considering it right now. And I have no view on that. And it wasn't the subject of Cantor. It may not have been, it wasn't the subject of the case, that's for sure. But in your writings, you raised this. It was part of your dissent discussing the right to vote and felony conviction, uh, eliminating it. Uh, I'm afraid it's inescapable. You've, you've got to be prepared to answer this kind of question. I read it and thought I can't imagine that she's saying this, but I'm afraid I was left with the suggestion you might. Which brings me to the conclusion here. We hear over and over from the other side of the aisle, we don't want any activist judges. We want judges who are gonna go back to the original document, literally take it word for word, put it in a historical context, and don't get in the way of making laws. We make the laws, you're a judge, you stay away from them. And yet, when we look at this case, the notion of what disqualifies you from buying a firearm was being rewritten by the dissenting judge and saying, when we say felony, we just mean violent felony. Well, the word violent isn't in there, but you found it, or at least found reference to it. It's not the only time this has happened. In Citizens United and its progeny, Republican-appointed justices struck down bipartisan campaign finance reform to unleash a flood of dark money into our political system. Part of that flood is paying for the ad campaign promoting your nomination for the Supreme Court. I know you've said you've gone radio silent in following the media. I don't blame you. I do the same thing politically. But I can just tell you, I've seen them. They are beautiful, expensive ads boosting your nomination for the Supreme Court from organizations we've never heard of, spending millions of dollars to make sure you get on the Supreme Court. Citizens United opened the door for that. And in Shelby County, Conservative justices gutted the Voting Rights Act to unleash a wave of voter suppression across the country, going back to the George Floyd moment. Unfortunately, a lot of it is for racial purposes. And this is an example, two or three examples that I've given here, of activist judges rewriting the law, abolishing the law. People have to get real. As I said to you on our phone conversation, I don't think you put the facts here and the law here and nine justices come to the same conclusion. Cases are five, four, six, three, seven, two, unanimous. People see things differently based on their backgrounds, their values, their experience. And I think it's simplistic to think this is a robotic performance once we put a judge on the bench. They just go back, read the Constitution, and rule. It's not that simple. And I think you've acknowledged that by saying even originalists disagree with one another. Is that true? Yes, law is hard and it's complicated, and people who approach it from different jurisprudential perspectives will sometimes reach different results. I mean, I, I think that's hard to deny because as you say, every vote from the Supreme Court isn't unanimous and sometimes it is, but cases don't get to the Supreme Court unless the circuits disagree among themselves. So it's hard. But to the extent, Senator Durbin, that you're suggesting that I have some sort of agenda on felon voting rights or guns or campaign finance or anything else, I can assure you and the whole committee that I do not. I didn't say that, and I wouldn't say that. But I will say that you come, if you're successful in this pursuit, you come to the Supreme Court with life experiences. You come to the Supreme Court having read a lot, I'm sure. 
and drawn some conclusions in your own mind about certain things and certain issues. Everyone on the court has that same background. They bring something to it that is just not generic, it's individual. And that's the point I'm making. There's an individualism to this. The class of originalists on the Supreme Court are not all gonna vote the same on every case. Uh, and I think merely saying originalism does not absolve you or us from uh, observing the obvious. There are gonna be differences. I think, would you like to say something? I don't wanna cut you off. No, that's okay. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. You, Senator